I'm going to, you can't talk yet. Cherokee just texted me and she said, LMAO, I think I've been influenced to rob a bank. That's all. That's it? I think it's because of a shared YouTube show that we watch, but I haven't seen the episode yet, so I'm not entirely sure. I just wanted you to know that that's something that Cherokee's thinking about, so if you see it on the news later, friend of the pod, Cherokee, may rob a a bank. We can do this all day, episode 31, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier Review, part one, episodes one through three. Are you ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Emily. And this is Mark. And we, and can, we can do this, do this all day. A podcast where we review all the movies and shows in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're going through the MCU chronologically and discussing our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. All right. Good evening, everybody. It is another glorious evening here in the nation's capital. My name is Mark Villa. Joining me as always, Emily Griswold. Good evening, Emily. Hola. As you could probably tell, it's going to be one of those nights where the command chair is over in studio. Well, not really the command chair. No, because there's, there's, no there's no chair. In there's no one in charge. There's no one in, there's no one in command either, so. Emily's going to be in the driver's seat tonight, so Studio E is going to be the center of all the attention. I'm kind of looking forward to that. I need to. I need to. I'm doing a story time tomorrow morning. I'm doing. I'm doing a story time first thing tomorrow morning, so I'm kind of looking forward to not taxing my voice tonight. But uh, you're you're up for this, Emily. You do, you've done this before. This ain't your first rodeo. You're ready to go. You get to, we get to talk about. Uh, we get to talk about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier tonight. My boy. It's Bucky time, ya boy. Which is why Emily is going to be taking point on this one. But first, we have, well, <laughs> yeah, I guess we have a little bit of news. Uh, I'll fire up the ticker tape machine. <laughs> well, I guess the biggest news in the MCU uh, has absolutely nothing to do with what's going to be airing or what's going to be hitting the airwaves or the movie theaters past the year 2023 because as of the recording of this the writers guild of america strike has been going on for i don't know roughly two weeks now i think and i have the feeling this is going to be another long one the 07 strike was like 100 days long plus 100 plus days long i have the feeling this one's going to go on for a while in fact i think abc already went on record and said our fall season is going to be nothing but reruns and unscripted stuff so just pay your writers i don't think it's that hard however Marvel does have their full slate of stuff for the rest of 2023 queued up and ready to go. Uh, Secret Invasion will be dropping on Disney Plus on June 21st. Looking forward to that. Samuel L. Jackson and Ben Mendelsohn in action. What else is coming up? We've just found out that Loki Season 2 will be dropping on Disney Plus on October the 6th. And Echo will be dropping on November 29th. And not only will it be dropping on November 29th, but apparently, according to Kevin Feige, the entire season, all, I think it's like six episodes, will be dropping simultaneously. So they're doing a Netflix for this show. You'll have the entire series at one time. And then, of course, the Marvel's debuts in theaters, I think it's November 11th. I don't have the date in front of me now, unfortunately, but it'll be early November. 
Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is in theaters right now. I believe it is number one at the box office, or at least for the moment. Fast and Furious 10 opens up today. That might take it over. But uh, I have seen Guardians 3. I loved, loved, loved it. I'm not going to oversell it too much or spoil it too much, but I had a fantastic time at this film. It is easily my favorite Guardians of the Galaxy movie now by far. And I'll tell you, Emily, if I had to rewrite my, redo my rankings for the MCU films right now, I would have to be do. I'd be doing a fairly serious shakeup. I would be very, very hard pressed to not put this movie kind of high up there. So not to oversell it, which I probably already, but I just really, really, I really loved this movie. There was such a fitting ending for these characters and their stories. And I, I cried a couple of times. It was, it's, it's a, you're going to, a couple. If you, a couple times. There's, if you don't, if you don't feel something during that movie, then you're not human. You have no soul because there's all, there is, there is so much heart in this. And, you know, this is James Gunn's swan song in the MCU. And he left us with a gift. I think he left us with a real gift. So hopefully y'all get to see that. I do like that this in the notes just says Mark has seen Guardians 3. No punctuation, no extra information, just this is the news. Mark has seen the movie. Well, it is news. Anytime we see a Marvel movie, it's news. Oh, by the way, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is now streaming on Disney Plus and available on Blu-ray DVD and 4K Ultra HD. I just watched it. Well, I watched some of it again last night. I was really, really tired, so I did fall asleep. Not because I dislike that movie. I like that movie quite a bit, but... So that is now available to view at home. Anything you wanted to bring up, Emily? Anything that you've heard, read, seen? No, I've just been watching uh, Jeremy Renner's Instagram. Have you been watching Renovations? I started that first episode, but just watched, you know, stuff came up and I never finished it. I watched the first episode and I started the second one. But like home improvement shows kind of are my thing. So aside from like, uh, what was that one? Move that bus. What's that show? You're you're talking to the guy who probably watches no, less TV it's a than call that's got that he's wow no come on extreme makeover home edition I did like that show oh that one oh that yeah oh that's because they move they they move the bus to yeah. reveal the thing they did but that's home reno- right like renovation shows aren't really my thing it was nice to like when they would meet the people that they were helping I do like that stuff but. Mm-hmm. Have, have you have you seen the Diane Sawyer interview? Yeah, I watched that. My God, I I think you know I think a lot of people intuited that this accident was a lot worse than well, yeah, even what we'd read and heard, and then he to wasn't actually walking on his own until that interview happened, which was in like the middle of April. He should so be dead. Four months. He should. He it is. Um. He it it really is a true miracle that he is alive today let alone doing everything that he's doing because he uh he uh, he he broke like with 36 bones and he was literally crushed he should have died he should have died and you know somehow wow life is just such a strange thing but you know more power to him he's a badass on screen and a badass in real life and that's just a testament to sheer willpower alone what a story so today we are continuing our foray into the MCU shows on Disney Plus. 
with The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We'll be talking about the first three episodes tonight. The series consists of six episodes. The show premiered on Disney Plus on March 19th, 2021, just two weeks after WandaVision ended. It stars Anthony Mackie, ya boy Sebastian Stan, Wyatt Russell, Aaron Kellyman, Danny Ramirez, Daniel Bruhl, Emily Van Camp, Clay Bennett, Florence Kasumba, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. The show was created by Malcolm Spellman, who wrote episode one and co-wrote episode six. He's best known for being a writer on Empire, the TV series, from 2015 to 2017. He is co-writer of the upcoming Captain America New World Order film, set to premiere on May 3rd, 2024. The series was directed by Kerry Scogland, who has directed a lot of television, including The Borgias, Queer as Folk, and The Handmaid's Tale. As we talked about during our review of WandaVision, Falcon and the Winter Soldier was one of the three original MCU series created to stream on Disney+, Plus, along with the aforementioned WandaVision and the first season of Loki. Falcon was actually intended to be the first to air, I think in August of 2020, but after filming in both Atlanta and Prague were delayed due to the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, filming on WandaVision was completed first, allowing it to air first. I really like this show. Hawkeye is probably my favorite of the Disney Plus shows so far, but I would say Falcon and the Winter Soldier is a close second. From what I've read, that's probably somewhat of a hot take. I know a lot of people, a lot of people do not like this show. A lot of people thought that it lost its way a lot in the middle and slowed down perhaps a bit too much in the middle episodes, like episodes three and four. And maybe that's true. I have, this is, I'm still in the middle of my rewatch right now. So I'm not 100% sure I would agree with that or disagree with that. These are, you know, like the Captain America films. These are the kind of stories in the comics that I like. And as a result, that kind of has translated into the types of film and TV from Marvel that I like. I really enjoy action adventure political drama kind of stuff, conspiracy theories and geopolitical happenings. Those sorts of, those sorts of stories are what I like are probably my favorite in Marvel comics. And as a result, they've kind of become my favorite things to watch uh, on TV and in film. And that's why, and that's why I like the Falcon and the winter soldier. It's, it's, you know, I'm a big Captain America fan, and this show is Sam and Bucky are, for all intents and purposes, the heirs to Steve Rogers. And the whole, the whole point of this series is about carrying on Steve's legacy. I think that Sebastian Stan and Anthony Mackie are fantastic in this show. They have great on-screen chemistry. I like Daniel Bruhl an awful lot. I think Aaron Kellyman is fantastic in her role. And I know we have a lot to say about the villainization of her and the flag smashers. We can get into that later. I think she plays the role very well. She does what she's been asked to do really well. Say what you will about the character of John Walker. I love Wyatt Russell in this role. He was probably in some ways, he might've been my favorite aspect of the show. I think he just as he, his, his character arc, the way it moves along, it's just so shocking and scary and in some ways very tragic and sad and he plays that he plays that part really well at the time when it came out because we only had two shows this was obviously my favorite having seen other shows 
and seen where those shows have gone. It's not anymore. But it's not because of, like, the actors. I think all the actors in this are really, really great. I think everybody does their job really well. I just think the plot in some of it is pretty weak. You know, they tried to do a, like you said, like a political thriller kind of thing. And I think I've just seen so many other really good political drama shows, even one that has Sebastian Stan in it, that are just so much better, like so well-written, really good plot, like not no holes, no weird situations where you're like, wait, what's happening? I don't understand. And I feel like, you know, we'll talk about this with the Flag Smashers. It's just like, I think they put people up and put characters up and said they're bad and kind of expected you to go along with it and be like, yeah, sure, okay. Like, pro-America. Like, America's the best. Anyone who's defending America is right, even if they do it a little wrong, when that's obviously not the case, and we know that's not the case. But I did like it. I like it way better than WandaVision, so there's that. (laughs) We'll get into a little bit later the topic of, and I think this is one of the, I don't know if it's necessarily a weakness of the show as much as it is kind of a a gaping hole in our knowledge of the MCU is, and this is something we touched on in WandaVision, everyone saying how bad the blip was and the consequences of the blip. And we see some of that in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But again, it's it's that whole how bad was it? And who was how it bad wor- for? Who was it? How, how bad was it? Who was it Where bad was for? It bad? Where was it bad? I mean, we get we get lots of we get lots of secondhand accounts from semi-reliable narrators about that, and I I kind of want to see firsthand what actually happened during the blip. I would love to see something that took place during the blip, so we can see for ourselves. Because I feel like yeah, we're lacking we're lacking a lot of context with a lot of what's going on here. And I think that's that's probably, a, maybe that is a weakness of the show. We don't have enough context. I don't know how hard it would have been to provide that, but I think that would have helped, especially some of those middle episodes, because it is kind of, it's like you, you kind of want to sympathize. You, you feel like you're supposed to sympathize more with Carly and the Flag Smashers, but sometimes it feels kind of hard to, because it's just, they're just kind of there and they, they're written kind of, formulaically like you've like you've said they sometimes they drift sometimes they drift too much into the stock villain role and that makes it kind of hard to sympathize with them but i'm sure we'll get into more of that during the course of the review and so without further ado we will turn things over to emily griswold starting with episode one new world order it's approximately six months after the blip We open with Sam Wilson getting dressed up in a suit and tie. He takes the shield given to him by Steve Rogers at the end of Avengers Endgame and places it in the carrying case Steve presented it to him in. We then flash back a few days ago to Sam flying a mission for the U.S. Air Force. He is attempting to stop a plane hijacked over Tunisia by a terrorist group known as LAF. They are led by George Batrock, last seen in Captain America the Winter Soldier, and they have captured Air Force Captain Vassant. That bit on the carrier when the Air Force Army dude is like, they can't know we're here. There's treaties. We have to pretend to adhere to is truly the most like imperial American thing I've ever heard in Marvel so far. They usually don't say things that are so blatantly like, yeah, America doesn't care. 
we got to follow the rules, except when we don't want to follow the rules. Uh, yeah. Like, there's one second when they're like, we can't go to in- go into Libyan airspace. And like, oh, that'd be really, really bad. And it's like, mm, yeah, why would that be bad? <laughs> when, when, in reality, when in reality, we could probably go into Libyan airspace every okay. other day. Probably all the time, yes. Sam breaks into the plane and engages the terrorists. During the fight, Batrock and some of his cohorts are able to don wingsuits and jump out of the plane carrying Vassant. Sam pursues them. As they dive into a canyon, they are met by LAF helicopters who start firing at Sam, but Red Wing quickly dispatches them. The wingsuits board a third chopper, but Sam follows them in, forcing Batrock to leave with Vassant just before Sam blows up the chopper. Batrock and Vassant enter a fourth chopper as a fifth chopper, a very heavily armed gunship, starts shooting at Sam. Sam destroys both remaining helicopters just as he flies through the opening of the last one to grab Vassant, all before they reach the Libyan border. We see Batrock Thank falling. goodness. <laughs> we see Batrock falling out of the sky in his wingsuit. We can't cross that Libyan border, man. I know, that's the one rule we have to follow. We can't break those rules. Our, Damn it. Our uh, our tense history with Libya really lasted through the blip. It's the one thing we have to hold on to. So, you know, the blip, for some people, it was just a little pause button. As soon as you hit it again, you pick up right where you left off. This just might be one of my favorite action sequences in all of the MCU, and definitely one of my favorites of Phase 4. Last episode, we talked about the bus fight in Shang-Chi being, being one of my others. This is a fantastic fight, and it's probably one of the reasons why I like this show so much. The fights are very well choreographed. They look good. It's, it's all film quality, but on the small screen. It's a fast, kinetic, exciting sequence, as I said, worthy of a feature film. And it's also great to see Sam Wilson commanding an entire set-piece action sequence on his own for a change. Why is Batrock such a cheeseball? I mean, obviously we didn't see much of him in the Winter Soldier movie, but he was not that much of a weirdo in that movie. Weirdo in what sense? He just felt like over animated and kind of silly. And I feel like he had a more serious tone in Winter Soldier. He was like a cool villain for a second. And now he's just like, he also didn't have a whole lot to do. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, did we just not get a chance to explore his character there? Well, he's not, I don't think, you know, he's a, he's like an MMA fighter or something. Turns he's out he's not, a weirdo. He's not an, I don't think, um, I keep forgetting the, I keep forgetting the actor's name, but he's not a George Saint, whatever, I think his name, I can't remember. He's not an actor by trade and maybe, maybe his lack of, lack of speaking parts in Winter Soldier and lack of scream time when he's not beating people up could have been deliberate. And now that he's been given somewhat more to do. It's more opportunity for him to demonstrate that he's not an actor. That's just a guess. I have no clue. After the mission, Torres tells Sam about another group gaining momentum called the Flag Smashers, who believe that life was better during the blip and who embrace the idea of one world without borders. Torres also opens himself as just another silly weirdo, along with the rest of the MCU fandom when it comes to Steve Rogers' conspiracy theories by asking Sam if he flew him to a secret base on the moon. Uh, I wrote a note about putting my stake in the ground about how poorly done the flag smashers are but we already talked about that so i feel like i can just let it go i mean until we actually talk about it but again there's so many holes in this attempted villainization of the flag smashers we don't know anything at all about what really happened in the blip we're hearing differing stories differing opinions and i think the overarching theme of this show is yay america like 
even though we're bad, sometimes we get our act together and we can do it. Um, I'm not sure if I put the Churchill quote in here, but the quote that we were talking about the other day, you know, America's going to do the right thing only after they've exhausted every other possible mm-hmm. option. I am saying that in my words, but that was Winston Churchill. He said that. And I think it's like this quote is something like Americans always do the right thing after they tried everything else. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of the idea that's like, yeah, it's, you know, we have our problems, but we're going to push through and persevere, like, you know, with Sam being Cap and like all these different things, and we're going to make it better and we're going to do the right thing. But these people who want to change the system, these people who think that there is another way we could do something and it could still be good, like that there are multiple ways to, you know, do the right thing. They're bad. They're evil. We don't want them. For those of you who have read the comics and may remember Ed Brubaker's run on Secret Avengers in the early teens, which was about Steve Rogers commanding a secret group of Avengers who perform all sorts of covert clandestine kind of missions, they operated from a secret base on the moon. So (laughs) I think that's probably a reference to that. We then flash forward to Washington, D.C., in the present, where Sam is presenting Steve's shield to the Smithsonian to be displayed in a Captain America exhibit. During his speech, he calls for new heroes suited to the post-blip era. Afterwards, he meets up in the museum with Colonel James Rhodey Rhodes, who asks Sam why he decided not to take up the mantle of Captain America. Sam reiterates what he told Steve when Steve gave him the shield, that it felt like it didn't belong to him. Always great to see Don Cheadle reprising the role of Rhodey. In fact, he got nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for this brief... I read a bit of... Yeah, it was Primetime? Yeah, Primetime Emmy Award for this brief appearance in the miniseries. I think he was also in Episode 6. And it's funny, because even he was surprised by the nomination, since he was barely in the show. Another great thing about this scene is that we're getting to see what Anthony Mackie can do when he's given some serious dramatic stuff. Not that we didn't see that in the earlier films, but it's really on full display now. This is He is front and center in a lot of this show. I especially love those moments of silent contemplation where we just sort of see Sam locked in thought. He's able to convey so much without having to say a word, and I think that is acting. We cut to a hotel where we see the Winter Soldier assassinate some unknown figure. One of the hotel guests witnesses the murder, so the Winter Soldier kills him too. As we hear the gunshot, we see Bucky Barnes waking up in a cold sweat on the floor of his apartment in Brooklyn. Don't mind me and all the faces that I'm pulling about seeing Bucky back in his Winter Soldier era. It's fine. I'm being totally normal about it. Do you need a moment? You okay? No, I'll have my moment later. The next day, we see Bucky attending a mandated regular therapy session with Dr. Rayner as a condition of his pardon from the government for the crimes committed by the Winter Soldier over the decades. He won't cop to having nightmares, but he does tell Dr. Rayner that he recently crossed another name off his list. He's been attempting to make amends by taking down individuals who profited or benefited from his work as the Winter Soldier. In doing so, he must follow three rules. One, he must do nothing illegal. Two, no one gets hurt. And three, each time he must identify himself as James Bucky Barnes, affirm that he is no longer the Winter Soldier, and state that this is part of his attempt to make amends. Rayner tells Bucky that he needs to start trusting people again and forge connections with people, starting with Sam, whose text messages he has apparently been ignoring. She reminds him that he he has his mind back and he has been pardoned. Therefore, he is free. Free to do what? asks Bucky. Now, 
I totally get that Bucky had Steve Rogers and the Wakandans vouching for him. And I also get that he helped, you know, save the world from Thanos. But doesn't it seem like the governments of the world or whoever went pretty easy on Bucky? He gets a pardon with the only condition being that he has to go to therapy? Brainwashing or no, that just seems like a very generous offer for someone who killed a ton of people over the course of eight decades. Maybe the blip put things into perspective for a lot of folks. I honestly don't know. But it seems like kind of a slap on the wrist. I imagine there's also a lot of other problems besides some old brainwashed grandpa. <laughs> Maybe. Pro I mean, I don't know. At least that's probably what they think. Also, I love Dr. Rayner so much. Also, also, when the camera is on Bucky in this scene, there's only two options. Very close in on his face, almost uncomfortably so, almost like how he feels like he's constantly being watched and scrutinized, or the wide-open shot showing just how alone and small he must also feel. That is a really neat observation. I hadn't thought about that. I'm glad you pointed that out. That is very true. And I like Dr. Rayner also. Take it from someone who's been to quite a few therapists himself. I probably could have used a former military person as one at some point in my life, maybe even right now. I like when she um, takes this phone and she's like, you don't have one contact in this phone. That's so sad. I just like the whole calling him out. What do you want? Peace. That is complete, absolute, utter bullshit. <laughs> I really like her. She's good. Later in Brooklyn, Bucky meets an older gentleman named Yori Nakajima for lunch, as is their custom every Wednesday. Yori ends up setting Bucky up on a date with a waitress there named Leah. Mr. Nakajima then tells Bucky about his son, RJ, who was mysteriously killed several years earlier. RJ is the hotel guest killed by the Winter Soldier in Bucky's Nightmare. Sam returns to his home in De La Croix, Louisiana, where his sister Sarah has been struggling to run the family seafood business, especially during the blip. She's been unable to secure a loan from the banks and is now ready to sell the family's longtime fishing boat, Paul and Darlene, to help keep the business solvent. Sam disagrees with her vehemently about selling the boat and vows to use his influence as a superhero to help her secure a loan. Okay, remember how you talked during our WandaVision review about sword director Tyler Hayward and how folks who didn't get blipped seemed to harbor a resentment towards people who did? It certainly looks like we're seeing that play out right here with Wilson Family Seafood. Sam disappeared for five years, leaving Sarah running the family business and raising two kids on her own. And now Sam, the prodigal Avenger, comes back and swoops in, both figuratively and literally, I suppose, making like the hero who's going to save the day. And here she has borne this incredible burden for all these years. And Sam's like, no problem, sis. I'll just get us alone and everything will be fine. Seemingly with no real concept of what she's had to go through in the last five plus years. She seems pretty sore about it. And you know what? She's not wrong. It makes way more sense to be mad about Big Brother sweeping in trying to fix things than being mad about him disappearing. Only one of those things he can control, you know? Bucky meets Leah at the restaurant, apparently called Izzy, after they close, per their arrangement during lunch earlier. During a game of Battleship, Leah tells Bucky that she's glad he's friends with Yori, and that Yori's been absolutely devastated since the death of RJ. Bothered by that topic coming up once again in the same day, Bucky excuses himself abruptly and goes to Yori's apartment. He is seemingly ready to confess to Yori what happened to RJ, but upon seeing the shrine to Yori's son in the apartment, Bucky pivots quickly and pays Yori back for lunch before leaving. We then see Bucky's list, with Yori's name at the top of one of the pages. 
first, there is something I did not write this down, but it just popped into my head now. One of my favorite images of the entire series is watching Bucky and Leah play Battleship because I think it's so funny watching Bucky in that big ass Wakandan vibranium arm of his trying to get the pegs <laughs> to put in the battleship. There's just something really, really funny about that. This is big, these, you know, this real cut guy with this gigantic mechanical arm that is about two times the size of my thigh trying to grab the right, the proper peg to stick in his, to stick in his damaged ship. I just thought that was really funny. But anyway, what I was also going to say I know I joke about ya boy all the time, but in all seriousness, Sebastian Stan, he is really good in this show. He is really legit good. And it's it's really the first substantial acting he's gotten to do as Bucky since Civil War. And it's the first time we really get to see Bucky grappling with the consequences of the Winter Soldier's actions. I love watching him grapple with the guilt, of course, but I also really enjoy him in his lighter moments coming to grips with the eccentricities and the absurdities of the modern world as Bucky Barnes and not the Winter Soldier for the first time, much as we saw Steve do in earlier films. He and Anthony Mackie are both just really good at conveying emotion wordlessly and relying on only their facial expressions. You're over here thinking about Sebastian Stan and his excellent acting, and I'm over here thinking Bucky really needs a girlfriend or a boyfriend, whatever works. Torres goes to Switzerland to continue investigating the Flag Smashers. The group is allegedly inviting people to congregate outside of a bank, where a member of the group distributes masks to whoever wants them. Torres then witnesses the bank being robbed by other members of the Flag Smashers, who are clearly in possession of superhuman abilities. While the police are busy arresting newcomers who happen to be wearing masks, the real Flag Smashers make off with a couple of bags of money. One of them roughs up Torres pretty badly during the chaos. Man, I thought Torres was going to die in this scene. That dude slammed him down flat on his back on a European brick street and then stomped on his face. Ouch. Back in De La Croix, Sam and Sarah attempt to get a loan at a bank that their family has been doing business with for generations. While the bank officer is clearly impressed with meeting Sam and fanboys over him rather tastelessly, he turns them down due to the business's poor performance in recent years and the lack of Sam's income while he was blipped. Sam points out that billions of others were gone, too, and that they should qualify under the terms that were in place when he blipped. But the bank officer said that the rules have changed and that things have tightened up considerably since everyone started reappearing. This whole plot line is a testament to Stan Lee's original mantra for Marvel Comics, that they were supposed to be, quote, the world outside your window. We may not have had half the world's population disappear and reappear five years later, but how is this situation that the Wilsons are going through right now any different than what happens today? I mean, working class families, particularly those of color, are trying to get by, but oftentimes the system is just plain rigged and the deck stacked against them. Plus, I thought the bank officer was a bit over the top. You know, I get that they're trying to demonstrate the dichotomy of our love for larger-than-life heroes versus our ignorance of normal people struggling to make a living. But playing the scene for laughs just didn't work for me. And I know you had something to say about that. I mean, was it for laughs? It wasn't very funny to me. I was just frustrated the whole time. 
Also, I mean, the banker is white and they're black and it's Louisiana and they're a small business. Sarah even says, after the banker says that the loan rules have tightened a post-blip, funny how things seem to always tighten around us. She's not just talking about struggling to make a living when you don't have money. And unfortunately, some things don't just change because half the world disappeared and came back. Maybe the intention was not to play it for laughs in kind of a bwahaha sort of way, but there's clearly a uncomfortable it's like uncomfortable laughter. <laughs> like you're you're just sort of laughing because you need to fill the awkward the vacuum or the awkward silence. I don't know if that counts as laughs. I know that they're trying to make a point. Maybe I was just having some secondhand embarrassment. I mean, I thought it was I well felt, done because felt... of that. Like I thought that scene was really well done because it was like obviously that could happen. Like that situation where something is kind of like not blatantly racist, but still kind of, you know, that that happens all the time. And your reaction is, aha, oh, oh no, like that. I suppose if you were, say, a sports figure of some sort who had had their heyday and was really popular and well-regarded and broke a lot of records or whatever and then retired from the sport and then fell on hard times and you wander into a bank you would probably have people, oh, man, I know you. I remember when you played for so-and-so. Can I have your autograph? Can I get a selfie with you? I'm sorry your loan hasn't been denied. I guess I can I guess I can see that happening. But there was just something the scene felt. Maybe that was. Maybe I missed the point. Maybe it was supposed to feel awkward. I, think I don't was. know. And Tor- you're always right, Emily, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Torres contacts Sam and tells him about his experience with the Flag Smashers in Switzerland. Moments later, the U.S. government announces on TV that the president and the Department of Defense have selected a new Captain America, and we see him wielding Steve Rogers' shield. Well, you know how I feel about that. Episode 2, The Star-Spangled Man. U.S. Army Captain John Walker is sitting in the locker room of the stadium at his high school alma mater in Georgia talking to his wife, Olivia. Everybody in the world expects me to be something, and I don't want to fail them, he says. Olivia leaves, and Walker is then joined by his friend and partner, Sergeant Major Lamar Hoskins. Walker comments that ever since he got the call to be Captain America, it's all been handshakes with senators, suits and speeches, and that he just wants to get down to doing the job. Hoskins responds that this is the job. Moments later, we see Walker, suited up as Captain America, being interviewed on Good Morning America in his high school football stadium in front of a large hometown crowd, talking about trying to live up to Steve Rogers. We cut to Bucky watching the interview on TV at home with a look of disdain on his face. We're going to talk more about this next time when we talk about all the characters and the actors. But I just want to say right now that to reiterate, whatever you think about John Walker, the character, I absolutely love Wyatt Russell in this role. We've only seen a glimpse of him thus far, but I think he does a fabulous job conveying just how mentally and emotionally broken this guy is. Stay tuned, true believers. Or hey, should I do my should I do my stand? You need to do your stand voice. Stay tuned, true believers. He also looks like a GI Joe doll straight out of the box, so that helps too. I'm sure that's not an accident. <laughs> I will say, I've talked about this at length with some people. I hate John Walker, and I think that is a good thing. I think you're kind of supposed you're some part some party was supposed to. Wyatt Russell is very good at his job and he knew what his job was and he did his job. You are not supposed to like John Walker. If you like him, there's something wrong with you. 
I still like the character because of what he makes me feel no, yeah, like and I'm, what, I'm he, what he goes like, through. I think it was really well acted. I think the character is a good, it exists well. And I, later on, I still find myself to some extent, to some extent pitying him mm, despite, despite the horrible things he does. But we'll get into that. We'll get that. We'll get into that next time. But I, I know that why Russell gets a lot of crap. Like people don't like him because they don't like John Walker. And it's like, no, you should love him because you hate John Walker. He's doing his job. He did his job. Sam is boarding a plane bound for Munich, where Red Ring last spotted the flag smashers that Torres filmed on his phone in Switzerland. When Bucky shows up and confronts him about John Walker and chides him for giving up the shield in the first place. Sam deflects the comment by telling Bucky about the Flag Smashers and how he's on his way to follow up on the guy who beat up Torres. Bucky insists on accompanying him. I probably quote, I read The Hobbit in 1937 when it first came out to myself at least twice a day. Mostly when someone acts as if I'm too young to know something, which happens constantly since I'm the third youngest person in my office at work. Also... Torres just got the crap kicked out of him by a super soldier not that many days ago, and he's just walking around like there aren't many broken bones in his body. What's that all about? Well, it's like I, well, it's like I was saying before. He should. It's like he should have. He should have died. He had the crap beaten. Is out there of something special? I mean, badly. obviously we, we Torres is going to be around. I assume, but like, is there something about him that we don't know? I know for they're they're sort of playing off a storyline in the comics that are running right now. I think the character has a different name, but spoiler alert, Torres is going to become the new Falcon to Sam Wilson's Captain America. He's going to get a suit and everything. I've seen, there are some, there are some illicit behind the scenes photos of him in his Falcon costume, but I don't think he's, I don't think he's imbued with any superpowers. He's just as got far a, as he I just know. takes in a lot of calcium. <laughs> he's just got a really good calcium regimen and a lot of and vi- protein vi- vi- vitamin d he work he works out yeah so we're getting a continuation of sam and bucky's relationship as it was more or less established in phase three most notably in civil war a general sense of disliking each other but countered by the bond that they shared because of their mutual friendship with steve rogers only now steve's gone and that's what makes this relationship so interesting to me how does that dynamic change, if it changes at all, without Steve around? Judging by their initial confrontation at the airbase, and then the staring contest and the lack of communication on the plane, it sounds like they have a long way to go at this point in time. Red Wings Intel leads Sam and Bucky to an abandoned warehouse in Munich, where they witness a group of people with superhuman strength apparently loading weapons and munitions onto a pair of trucks. As the trucks depart, Red Wing scans indicate someone on board the truck who appears to be a hostage. Sam and Bucky give chase, with Bucky boarding the truck with the hostage. The cargo on the truck is medicine, not weapons, and the hostage is a young woman who quickly dons a Flag Smasher's mask and attacks Bucky with very evident super soldier capabilities. Bucky and Sam engage the Flag Smashers on the roofs of the moving trucks and appear to be having trouble dealing with them until Walker and Hoskins arrive via helicopter. One by one, the Flag Smashers force the four off the convoy. Bucky is convinced that they are using pure super soldier serum. It is painfully obvious that our new Captain America is not a super soldier, a point which will be very important later in this series. Almost makes you wonder why the U.S. government even wanted to have a new Captain America to serve in any capacity beyond propaganda piece. We love propaganda! I always also forget that Sam 
doesn't have the super soldier serum either. He's just got wings, which help out a lot, to be sure. But he's still a regular dude. The differences, of which there are many, between him and John Walker show pretty early on. It's that it's that Wilson Wilson family seafood. Yeah. A crawfish keeps crawfish keeps him going. As Sam and Bucky start walking the twenty miles to the airport, Walker and Hoskins, aka Battlestar, pick them up in a Jeep and inform Sam and Bucky that they tracked them to Munich by accessing Red Wing, who is US government property, technically, and are operating under the authority of the Feds and the GRC, the Global Repatriation Council, which has been trying to fix the mess created by the reappearance of those who blipped. They claim they're there to help Sam and Bucky and want the four of them to work together. Bucky can't stand being around Walker anymore and demands to be let off. When Walker tells Sam that he wants Captain America's wingman with him, Sam gets off too. I love that Sam and Bucky get along when the task is to be mean to someone else. It's that I can talk about my siblings but you can't kind of thing, which is one of my favorite tropes. Sam and Bucky are just two grumpy brothers who need to spend time locked in a shed or something until one comes out or they both come out together as friends. Well, it's always good to find common ground, isn't it? Well, it's just, you know, it's like, I can talk about you, but you nobody else can talk about you. That night, the Flag Smashers and their leader, Carly Morgenthau, shack up in a safe house provided by an ally. She tells them that the GRC care more about the people who blipped than the people who never left, and that after tomorrow, there's no turning back. Bucky takes Sam to Baltimore to meet Isaiah Bradley, a former super soldier who was sent after the Winter Soldier in Korea in 1951. Bucky tells Isaiah about the super soldiers he and Sam encountered in Munich and attempt to enlist his help, but Isaiah flat out refuses. Having spent the better part of 30 years imprisoned and being experimented on by both Hydra and the U.S. government. As Bucky and Sam leave the Bradley house, Bucky tells him that he never told anyone else about Isaiah, not even Steve, so as to not draw any more attention to an already traumatized Isaiah. Sam is not happy that he is just now learning about all of this. As they argue, they are confronted by Baltimore police, who are initially profiling Sam, but ultimately arrest Bucky because there's a warrant out for him for missing his weekly appointment with Dr. Rayner, thus violating the terms of his pardon. Yay, Baltimore! My hometown! <laughs> my hometown, Hon! Yep, it's the, uh... <laughs> yay, Baltimore! Yeah, they've, they've got... It's, I'm sure this was shot in Atlanta, but they've got the look of the, 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 look of the neighborhood is 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 pretty good i've you know i've seen some i've seen some neighborhoods that look a, an awful lot like that in baltimore and uh yeah they got the police profiling thing down pretty good too i think hon there i should just read i should read the rest of this in my baltimore accent first hats off to the great carl lumbly for a fantastic performance as isaiah this bradley might be Hawn. worse than the mid like the northern midwest accent which is my least favorite accent please turn it off yeah. First, hats off to the great Carl Lumbly for a fantastic performance as Isaiah Bradley. The character first appeared in the comics in a miniseries called Truth, Red, White, and Black by Robert Morales and Kyle Baker. Similarly, that iteration of Isaiah Bradley was just one of a number of black men forcibly recruited to become super soldiers by the U.S. military after Dr. Erskine's formula was lost. In real life, soldiers of color have had all sorts of terrible things done to them by the government in the last 100 plus years such as being experimented on and being deliberately exposed to things like mustard gas so it was certainly interesting to see marvel comics weave that sad chapter of our history into their mythology in this episode i love how isaiah tells bucky that you don't just wake up one day and decide who you want to be except maybe for folks like you 
this show this show didn't shy away from issues of race and i'm very pleased with that second i've been talking for months now about how the mcu appears to be quietly setting up some sort of young avengers project well in this episode we meet isaiah's grandson eli and fans of the comics know that Eli Bradley is Patriot and that he ultimately becomes a member of the Young Avengers. Third, I thought it was interesting how the cops are pretty obviously profiling Sam until they realize who he is. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Wilson. I'm sorry, Mr. Wilson. And suddenly, you know, sudden, like the guy in the bank, suddenly, oh, he's a hero. We can't touch him. And then it's Bucky who ultimately gets arrested and for something more or less unrelated to him and Sam arguing in the street in the first place. And the only thing that saves both of their butts was that very fact, that Sam is famous and Bucky is the actual criminal here. I also feel like the scene so perfectly encapsulates the concept of white privilege, basically. You know, Bucky committed actual crimes against the U.S. government and many other governments, and essentially got off scot-free while Isaiah did everything he was supposed to do and was treated like an actual criminal. Of course, Bucky's life hasn't been easy. But he does get the benefit of the doubt, like we talked about. He gets off for all of this by having to do therapy, and that's it. And in most situations, it's because of who he is. It's because of what he is. While Isaiah is left to suffer. And then, of course, Sam is assumed to be the troublemaker by the cops, while Bucky is the one who's being harassed by Sam. And that's another you know, another great thing I love about, about Carl Lumbly's performance, as brief as it is in that one scene. I mean, he's just so... He's just he's been through so much and he's just had it. And just when he when he just yells, get out of my house. I mean, it's just oh, that is such a oh, it's just it's just chilling and, and, and painful. There's so much in those five words. Get out of my house. That is five words, isn't it? Get out of my house. Yeah, this those five words. It just it just it gives me chills every time I every time I see it. I actually rewound it a couple of times just to hear that because I, I just needed to feel that. Walker, Hoskins, and Dr. Rayner arrive in Baltimore. Walker intervenes to have Bucky released, but Rayner forces him and Sam to have a joint therapy session with her immediately. In it, Bucky tells Sam that Steve entrusted him with the shield and that he threw it away. And he believes that if Steve was wrong about Sam, then Steve was wrong about Bucky, too. And here's where my heart breaks, as you well remember. It's also, like, probably the funniest scene in the whole show when they have to, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, this is good. This is great, Doc. Thanks so much. I love the soul-gazing exercise. Like, I thought that was really, really funny. I, I thought I had commented on that, but I guess I... I guess I, I, guess I did. You do I, I figured, you talk I about like, the buddy cop thing. A little later on. I, I, I didn't, but I didn't talk about the therapy session for some reason. I guess I, I, guess I sort of figured you were going to cover that because I know you love that quote so much. And from I love the, that the whole scene. Quote. I think it's great. Sam says he doesn't expect Steve or Bucky to understand why he did what he did, but that he hopes both will accept that he did what he thought was right. Sam then pledges to backburner their conflict until the current crisis is over. And then he and Bucky don't have to ever see or do anything with each other ever again. Outside, Walker and Hoskins tell Sam and Bucky about Carly Morgenthau, and once again ask them to help with their investigation. Again, Sam and Bucky refuse. With that, Walker tells Sam and Bucky to stay out of his way. I think one of the reasons I like this show so much is that it really leans into the buddy cop genre, which I also like. I take that that whole that whole confrontation during the therapy session is very, 
you could have you could have put that in a you could put that in a lethal weapon movie or taken it right out of a lethal weapon movie. I do like when he reaches into the cop car and he's like tweaking the siren to get their attention. Oh. And then when they turn around, Walker's like, "Hey guys." In Bratislava, Slovakia, a member of the Flag Smasher sacrifices his life to hold off the forces of the mysterious power broker, who sent Morgenthau a threatening text message earlier, while a plane bearing Morgenthau and her cohorts depart. Meanwhile, Sam and Bucky decide to visit the imprisoned Helmet Zemo in order to gain intel on the Flag Smashers. Did Zemo get snapped? I have been asking myself that I assume ever not, since this... because they wouldn't have been able to have found him in six months. I guess not. If he'd broken but... out or whatever. But yeah, he never makes any reference. No one ever says whether or not he blipped. He right, didn't say whether or not he blipped. Episode 3, Power Broker. Walker and Hoskins lead a raid on the safe house in Munich where Morgenthau and the Flag Smashers were briefly hiding out. But they have long since cleared out and they have no leads as to their whereabouts. For all of Walker's displayed faults up to this point, of which there are many, being mentally and emotionally unstable wasn't exactly one of them. Until the dude spits in his face and Walker yells, Do you know who I am? at him. Being Captain America is as much a state of mind as it is anything else. And John Walker just threw up his first red flag. I don't put together the write-up. That's your job because you're good at it. But we're just going to gloss over that weird Global Repatriation Council ad with the white guy that sounds like Barack Obama as the narrator. Uh, I, yeah, I... I would you like to say anything? For some reason, I just didn't feel. No, it was just I, don't, weird. I don't know. I didn't feel like compelled bizarro. to comment on it. I don't know why. The, what was it? Restore, reset, <clears throat> rebuild. I'm like, okay. What are you? New World Order? It's Freemasons Council. Like, what's happening here? I still like the. I still like the Illuminati. ads in WandaVision. <laughs> I like the ads in WandaVision better, but it does kind of have that Orwellian. We know what we're doing. We're here to help you. But that guy did kind of sound like Barack Obama, but he's obviously not. I guess I missed that. I... Sorry. Oh, I'm just saying. Bucky and Sam visit Helmut Zemo, who is imprisoned in Berlin for the numerous crimes he committed in Captain America's Civil War. The murder of Wakanda's King T'Chaka and various other people, framing Bucky, facilitating the breakup of the Avengers, which in turn allowed Thanos to more easily do all the stuff that he did... Desperate for his help in finding and stopping the Flag Smashers, Bucky facilitates a prison riot that allows Zemo to escape. Bucky doesn't inform Sam of this plan until the two of them rendezvous with Zemo at a local garage. I do really love that thing where someone describes a scene as it happens. I don't know where it originated. I think it happens in the Oceans movies, right? They, like, describe a con uh, as they're doing the con. Right. It probably started earlier than that, but that's well, that's one of the more notable examples, I think. Because I saw it in, like, uh, White Collar, which is one of my favorite shows, and a couple other times. I think in um, 21, the card counting movie. I think it's in that one. I don't think I know that movie. But I think that's actually a really fun way to keep the story moving. Also, I really like the scene because I just love how bad Bucky is at lying. Well, you know, if you have... If you're going to do a describe the scene as it happens thing in Marvel, the only real way you can do that is to have Luis from the Ant-Man movies tell it. So, you know, dog! I do so I know just, this guy! So I know I this guy that. in prison in Berlin! I think they're really funny. Zemo, a baron within Sokovian royalty, has amassed considerable wealth in his lifetime and has a private plane, which he uses to fly the three of them to Madripoor, a sanctuary city-state in the Indonesian archipelago, that serves as a haven for criminals and is run by the mysterious power broker. 
He plans to make contact with someone there named Selby to obtain information on the Flag Smashers. Cut to a GRC relocation center in Riga, Latvia, where Morgenthau sits with an unknown bedridden woman in her last moments. This is starting to feel like an episode of 24, only this time it's Bucky Barnes instead of Jack Bauer, who's deliberately, and without very much thought apparently, breaking a bad guy out of prison to allegedly serve the greater good. It was the only way, you know how they say that. I admit I am a little bit tired of that trope. The only thing I don't like about Zemo in this show is that in Civil War, Zemo's issue with Bucky was actually more of an issue with Tony Stark because of what happened in Sokovia. But now all of a sudden, Zemo has always had an issue with superpowered beings, and he spent all his spare time, apparently, that he had before uh, before then going after superpowered soldiers. Like, huh? did I miss something? Because this was not how he was presented to us. He was presented to us as like, he had just been a regular old cop in Sokovia and his family died and he was getting revenge. But now well, the Avengers. he's it's been like doing the... this forever is what it sounds like, that this has always been his goal. Perhaps. I mean, that could be, they could have retconned that a little bit, but it, it, it's, it makes sense as a retcon. He, in Civil War, it was, his target was the Avengers. He always wanted to go after the Avengers. Because the Avengers did their thing and without any seeming, in his opinion, without any regard to any safety, allowed his family and you know thousands of other Sokovians yeah, to die. But it sounded like he had a problem I, with them before that happened. He may he may have, but there's there's a difference with there's a difference between having a problem with the idea of superpowered beings and then actually having them drop drop a city on your family. Well, yeah, I will say I love the fight, disagreement, conversation, debate uh, that Bucky, Sam, and Zemo have on the plane on the way to Madripoor. All the things that Zemo says about putting people on pedestals and treating them like they're above reproach and incapable of wrongdoing, the way he says it is out of line, but he's totally right. Is that the scene where Bucky, he's ta- he tries to talk about Steve or something and Bucky like threatens to kill him? Yeah, because he takes Bucky's little notebook that was Steve's notebook. And he's like, oh, oh I know right. what your list is. And he's a total jerk about it. But he's right. He's very good at prodding the bear. He takes every opportunity he can to get in his digs at yeah. the Avengers and Super. You did this. Oh, yeah, this happened when you dropped a city on my whatever, on my country. And he just, he always kept very casually, passive aggressively inserts that. And it's, it's like you said, he's not entirely wrong. Accompanied by Bucky pretending to still be the Winter Soldier, and Sam masquerading as Conrad Mack, a.k.a. the Smiling Tiger, Zemo leads the trio into Madripoor, where he uses Bucky to get the attention of Selby by having him rough up some goons in a bar. It's a foregone conclusion that Zemo is using the need for Bucky to maintain the Winter Soldier persona to screw with his head, am I right? Oh, definitely. Also, I love seedy, dark, underworld scenes in a movie or a TV show, and Madripoor hits all those notes for me. Do you know how many times I've ever been in a club? Maybe twice, and one of those was a honky-tonk, but I still love it. I like the Madripoor stuff because Madripoor figures very prominently in Marvel Comics, and it was neat to see that rendered in live action on film, or in this case, television. That said... There is also a part of me that gets a little tired of the seedy underworld citadel 
we see it in we see it in we see it in Star Wars. It's in every sci-fi movie, and I love it. We, we we see it in Star Wars constantly. We've started to see it in Star Trek a lot, which irks me for for various reasons. But they did mad. They did do Madripoor. They did do Madripoor justice, I think. Well, and Madripoor kind of reminds me of Busan. It reminds me of Busan like in a high tech Black Panther. But still it kind re- of CD situation. Re- well, Black Panther reminds- not CD. Wakanda's not it re- CD, but. It reminds me of Bus- it reminds me of Busan and Black Panther. It reminds me of Macau in Shang Chi. Yeah, I like it. The three meet with Selby, who tells them that the power broker has hired a Hydra scientist named Wilfred Nagel to recreate the Super Soldier Serum, and that he's in Madripoor right now. Unfortunately, their cover is blown by an ill-timed phone call to Sam from Sarah. As the trio are about to be executed, a gunshot comes through the window, and Selby is now dead. With all of Madripoor thinking that Zemo, Sam, and Bucky killed her, and with a massive bounty on their heads, they run. They're about to be gunned down in an alley by two bikers when the bikers are shot from windows above. Out from the building emerges Sharon Carter. She's still a fugitive and has been either on the run or holed up in Madripoor ever since the events of Civil War. And she doesn't mince words reminding Sam and Bucky of that fact. She takes them back to her place in Hightown, where she's been hard at work running a gallery of stolen artwork that she sells to select clientele. Since Madripoor forbids extradition, it's as good a place as any for her to hunker down. Sam offers to help her clear her name, but she refuses, citing her distrust of charity and the hypocrisy of superheroes. So instead, Sam makes her a deal. She helps them by digging up info on Nagel at her next showing in an hour, and Sam will use his influence to clear her name. Sharon really did get a raw deal, didn't she? I'm kind of disappointed that Steve never tried to reach out to her in all those years, especially if she didn't blip. Steve would have had five whole years to help her out, and he didn't. I love Steve, but the longer we've had him, the more selfish he's become. Maybe that's intentional. You know, Stark became more selfless while Steve became more selfish. Yeah, and I think I think that either inadvertently or perhaps very deliberately on the part of the writers of the show is is part of the point there's sort of sort of the deconstruction the deconstruction of heroes i think is a very big theme in this show are they as are they really larger than life are they not fallible and it kind of i guess you could if you wanted to make the historical slash political comparison it's kind of like poking a hole in the the myth of american exceptionalism in this case the we're poking a hole in the myth of Captain America exceptionalism, I suppose. Steve Steve Rogers was still a human being, and he made mistakes, and this was one of them, a very, very glaring one. What's not disappointing is watching Zemo get his groove on in Sharon's art-showing-turned-rave. As some of you may or may not know, there's an extended cut of the scene with Daniel Brühl dancing, the so-called Zemo cut, on YouTube. It's only 10 or 15 seconds longer, but it's kind of funny watching Zemo get down. I guess he was really glad to finally be out of the big house. Sharon takes the trio to a yard full of shipping containers. She points them towards the one where Nagel is supposed to be. They enter, but it appears to be empty. Upon closer inspection, Zemo finds a trap door in the back of the container leading to a hidden research lab. They enter and find Nagel. I have to say, I love the song that he was listening to. Uh, I don't even know like who wrote it or where it's from, but I, it's really good. He had worked for Hydra, trying to reproduce the super soldier serum until Hydra fell, and the five failed super soldiers were found and subsequently killed by Zemo in Siberia. 
He was then recruited by the CIA and worked on the blood of an American super soldier test subject who had semi-stable traces of the compound in his system, Isaiah Bradley, presumably. He was able to isolate the compound, but blipped before he was able to finish his work. When he returned, the program had ended, and he went to work for the power broker and produced 20 vials of serum, all of which were stolen by Carly Morgenthau. He doesn't know where she is, but he says he was called by her a couple of days earlier to help with a woman named Donya Medina, who was dying of tuberculosis. While all this is going down, dozens of bounty hunters are closing in on their position. Sharon fights most of them off, but she enters the lab to hurry everyone along. Just as Nagel tells him that there's no more serum in the lab, Zemo kills him. A bounty hunter fires a rocket-propelled grenade at the lab and destroys it. Sam, Bucky, and Sharon escape, but so does Zemo, without them. As the three are being pinned down, Zemo comes back and rescues them. He, Bucky, and Sam depart to look for Morgenthau. Sharon gets picked up by her assistant in another car. Man, Sharon Carter is a scary, stone-cold killer now. She straight up massacred all those guys who came at her. I guess that's what happens when you put a former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent slash former FBI agent in survival mode for seven years. You get really mad, and you get really good at putting beatdowns on people. Second, I love the buddy cop movie banter between Sam and Bucky after they get out of the wreckage of the lab. They're yelling at each other about how one is supposed to follow the other. It's in every action movie, Sam yells. Third, we finally get to see Zemo wearing the purple balaclava that he wears in the comics. Uh, it's a very iconic look for him in the comics and a very nice touch in this show. I looked at the song that plays in Nagel's Lab. It's Mel Torme. It's a Mel Torme song? Yeah, Coming Home Baby. Something from closer to Stephen Bucky's era. I think that's probably why I liked it. I do like Closer. That. I do like the 40s, 50s. Outside a GRC depot in Vilnius, Lithuania, Morgenthau and Dovich wax about they, what they would have done with their lives if it not had been for all of this. Carly says she wanted to be a teacher, like Mama Danya, but now she says, this world is ours and we're going to use all of our strength to give it to the kids in those camps. Meanwhile, Walker and Hoskins decide to play Walker's hunch that Sam and Bucky broke Zemo out of prison. I guess this comes back to your stake in the ground from earlier. But what exactly is Carly's goal here, or have we not been made fully aware of it yet? I honestly don't remember, because I, I haven't seen any of these since they first aired. I can't tell if she's trying to take over the world, or start her own little colony of displaced people run by super soldiers, or what? Am I missing something here? If I were a different person, I'd try and come up with something on behalf of the writers or Marvel or whatever, but like I said, the Flag Smashers are poorly written. It's implied that, at least for them, life was better during the blip, but now that everyone has returned, they're being shunted back to the fringe of society. But aside from that, uh, nothing else they do really makes sense. Hmm. On Zemo's plane, Sam learns from Torres that Doña Medina was a refugee who recently died in Riga. Guessing that Morgenthau could be there, they head for Riga. Sam, regretting all the lives consumed thus far by it, tells Bucky that he should have destroyed the shield rather than put it in a museum. Bucky responds that the shield is too important, and that he'll take it from Walker himself if he has to. I think that Sam and Bucky are both being utterly selfish about the shield. Sam just wants the problem, for lack of a better word, of Captain America to go away. It's like he just wants to wish it away. He doesn't want to become Captain America, so he puts the shield in the museum. They give it to someone who's not worthy, so now he thinks it should be destroyed. And then on the other hand, you've got Bucky, who is so consumed with the legacy of the S.H.I.E.L.D. 
that he now suddenly thinks it's better off in his hands. And I think that's a very bad idea, at least right now. So I think they're both wrong in this scene. The Flag Smashers raid the GRC depot in Vilnius for supplies. Six months worth that they were just sitting on. Morgenthau tells them, we're fighting for our lives. As they depart, she blows up the depot with people still in it, saying, this is the only language that these people understand. I'm not sure I'm ready to get into debating the morality of Carly blowing up the depot. So I'll start with this. We've talked about people like Sword Director Hayward saying how horrible the world was during the blip, but we didn't see it, so we can only take his word for it. Now we've got Carly Morgenthau saying that she and other folks who did not blip have been living in horrible conditions, while the people who returned from the blip have had attention lavished on them. So much so that she's willing to murder people to prove a point. Like I said earlier in the show, we really need to see what actually happened during the blip, because I feel like we're getting all this information about the blip secondhand from unreliable narrators completely out of context. And it just, it kind of makes me not believe them. I, I feel like I'm supposed to believe them. It's, it's like it's been written, so we're, we, we're supposed to believe them, but I'm having a hard time doing that. I can definitely agree with you there. Granted, the way the world works, suffering is always going to exist on some level, blip or no blip. But we don't even know how it looked aside from a few scenes at the beginning of Endgame, which were all focused on a group of people that had all the resources they could possibly need at their disposal. I still I hope Marvel goes back and gives us some context. In fact, there was there were there were rumors a long time ago that Secret Invasion might actually take pl have taken place during the blip, but that's not the case. So I guess we're just gonna have to wait. Maybe after maybe after they start paying the Writers Guild of America, we can get something. In Riga, Bucky notices a Wakandan Kamoyo bead on the ground, and then another one on a wall nearby where he, Sam, and Zemo have been walking. He proceeds into an alley and encounters Ayo of the Dora Milaje. She has come for Zemo. And Thank you. There you have it, <laughs> folks. Our review of Falcon and the Winter Soldier Part 1. We'll cover the characters in the next episode like we did with WandaVision. And in the next episode, we'll cover episodes four, five, and six. So awesome sauce. Be safe. Have a good night. <laughs> okay, are you are you wait are, are you are you are you genuinely trying to recreate what I say, this or are you just you are you just are you just mocking me? Kind Don't of be, both. do do kind you of both. do you do you do you just as no, it's whatever. too late. All this is staying, and you have to keep all this in. <sighs> yes, I will keep all of it. Anyway, yeah, that's the end of the episode. We'll see you. Mark's gonna go on a fancy vacation, so hopefully, maybe this will be edited before then. Hopefully, hopefully, and uh, hopefully we'll be, hopefully you'll get part two by the end of the summer. Yeah, it'll be fine. We're, uh, we can, we, we sometimes are a little slow, but we get them out there. We thank you all for being so patient with us. Should we say goodnight to everybody? Goodnight to everybody. Okay, goodnight. <laughs> See ya. Bye. Alma, Alma oh Mater. God, shut up. Okay. Are you ready for the thing that I didn't want to forget to say? Okay. This and... is your prize for me not making a Venom reference in that entire thing. It might actually be worse than me making a Venom reference, though. The other day...
<laughs> I saw an ad for Mission Impossible, like a bunch all in a row, a bunch of ads for Mission Impossible played like a couple times in a day. Like the new movie? Yeah. And then the whatever I, part one. For the life of me, could not remember um what the other movie was. The movie that you love. Your favorite movie. I was like, oh yeah, Mission Impossible, Mark's favorite movie. And I was like, no, it's not. His favorite movie is the other movie with the same guy. And I could not for the life of me remember. And I had to search like I had to Google search like Air Force military movie with famous actor. Second highest grossing film of 2022. And it was one of the ones behind that came behind up. behind it's Avatar: like The Way of Africa. Water. And I was like, ah, oh, yes, there it is. Don't think, just do. But that's what I... happened, and I wanted to tell you about it in a way that it would take the place of me torturing you with venom is to me torture you with the fact that I got Mission Impossible and Top Gun screwed up. Well, that doesn't bother. That doesn't bother me. The, the, the venom re- the venom references don't bother me anymore. Now, no, they don't bother so, you anymore. Not you really. Come up with something else that bothers you. No, does it bother? Why do you? Why do you have to? Do you because have to, it's funny. You love poking the bear, don't I you? I do. I am Helmet Zemo. I like to bother people. Well, good. Like I'm trying to. I'm trying to. As part of my. As part of my self-improvement project. New Year's resolution, don't get annoyed by Emily when she's intentionally trying to be annoying. Well, I didn't say that. You're always gonna you're always gonna have something to annoy me. But I'm trying not to do it. I'm not trying I'm trying not to do it on the air. I'm trying not to let on air stuff bother me. Because that's just unprofessional. <laughs> what regular try- stuff. Oh, you do lots of regular stuff that irritates me. <laughs> 